being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the Lord, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. For if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband liveth, she shall be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no more an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell. I'm after your hearts, not your heads, is a refrain often heard by college students in Dr. Mitchell's Bible classes. In his own words, his goal was to help you fall in love with the Savior, and his teachings always tended to fill your mind with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also a pioneer radio speaker. In his day, there were no tape recorders, so he and his organist had to be at the station five evenings a week. He was heard live every weekday on radio stations in the Northwest. The Unchanging Word is an independent Bible study, but by the grace of God, we can still benefit from the ministry and teaching of Dr. John G. Mitchell. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never The Unchanging Word Bible Study continues our study in the book of Romans, the systematic exposition and foundation of the Christian faith. Now, in moving on from Romans 6, we are now continuing on into Romans 7. Dr. Mitchell will be giving a brief overview of the sections of Romans 7. Now, what will we discover in Romans 7? It's an ongoing deliverance. This time, it is deliverance from law. And not only this, but Dr. Mitchell also explains in Romans 7 why God gave the law. And with reference to Jesus, you will hear Dr. Mitchell make a distinct difference between Jesus keeping the law for you and Jesus Christ meeting the demands of the law for you. They're not the same. Dr. Mitchell will explain this difference. So turn once again in your Bible to Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Here is our teacher, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Good day, friends. Again, it is our joy to come to you with studies in the book of Romans. And I sincerely hope that you, dear folk who are listening in, are reading Romans over and over again. You know, it, it is a wonderful thing, if I may say this, for us to have our minds pregnated with the truth or with the text of Scripture. I think too often we Christians neglect the Word of God, or we may read a verse or two and uh, have devotions. But I mean to sit down and read a book through and have your mind filled with the text. It is this way that we keep our minds straight on doctrine. Not to take a verse here and there and build a doctrine point, but take the context in which the verse is given to us. For remember, the Bible is a divine revelation from God to you and to me. 
In the Word of God, He speaks to us in the revelation of His purpose and His program, as well as the revelation of Himself. How glad I am that God has revealed very simply how one can be translated into the, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, to be transformed from a child of wrath into a child of God, and then to know something of practical deliverance uh, from death and from sin. Now, we've been dealing with this in the past few lessons. We've been in chapter 6, where we found that we were delivered from sin as a place in which to live. We were delivered from sin as a principle of operation. And we were delivered from sin as a practice of life, something new, living for God instead of sin, instead of self. And the death of Jesus Christ severed the relationship from Adam's race and from death in chapter 5, and then from sin as a master in chapter 6, and then from the law in chapter 7. Now, before I go into chapter 7, I would like to suggest this, coming back to chapter 6, this question of practical sanctification, where he invites us to yield our members, that is, to yield our bodies so that God can live through you and through me for the manifestation of his life to others, that his love and his truth and even himself might be revealed in you and me by our words and by our works and by our very attitude to people. I'm talking to you Christians concerning this. For the unsaved person, the one who has never accepted the Savior, of course he cannot manifest the life of Christ, nor can he produce any righteousness. There must be, first of all, relationship with Jesus Christ. And irrespective of your past, if, you've, if you will accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a child of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, and delivered from sin as a master. This is what Jesus Christ did at the cross. He not only put away our sins, but he annulled the power of him who had the power of death and annulled the power of sin as a master in a Christian's life. You know, some years ago, we had a man here in Portland by the name of Alexander Clark. He had spent most of his life in Africa, in the Belgian Congo. He went out there many, many years ago when they used to take the boat, take the ship, and go to uh, West Africa, and then they would have to hike in from the coast, maybe paddle up the, some rivers, and then walk the rest of the way through the jungles and through the forest till he got to, to uh, the Belgian Congo. Uh, he was telling us that when he was there, one day while he was sitting in the doorway of his kraal, he heard a woman screaming, and he ran down into the village, and here a woman in uh, reaching over to light her pipe before the open fire, fell into the fire. And automatically, you know, her arm went up and she protected her face by her arm. But the arm was very severely burned. And Mr. Clark went in there and treated that arm. And then for weeks afterwards, she would, every day or so, would, would deal with this woman and massage her arm and massage the muscles until the woman was able to use it. In other words, I believe he just, he just saved the woman losing an arm. The following fall, at harvest time, 
he was sitting in front of his crawl, and a woman came down from the village with a great big basket on top of her head. It was filled with corn. And as she came, she came right in front of Mr. Clark, uh, lowered the basket down to his feet and said, this is your corn. And he laughed and he said, no, this is not my corn, but I'd be glad to buy it from you. No, 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 I can't sell this corn. This is your corn. No, he said, I didn't plant any corn. This is not my corn, but I'll buy the corn. She said, you can't buy the corn because it's not mine. The corn is yours. And then she said, this is your arm. This is your hand. This hand and arm prepared the ground. This hand and arm put in the seed after preparing the soil and cultivated it and harvested the crop. This is your arm. This is your corn. I never forgot that. You and I were under the master of sin, under the sentence of an eternal death because of sin. And we were ready under the wrath of God to die, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ came, bore our wages, saved us from death, from judgment, from wrath, from the powers of hell. Now he says, will you give me your arm? Will you yield your members unto me as one who is alive from the dead? Would you let me use your body to glorify and to honor our Father? Is not this the great desire of Paul in writing to the Corinthian church in chapter 6, verse 15 and verse 19 and 20 when he said, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit which you have of God and you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies and in your spirits which are God's. Now, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, my Christian friend, if you and I were to just definitely, just as we took Jesus Christ as Savior, we put our trust in him. Can't we just put our bodies in his hands too and let him work through them? You know, it's an amazing thing about us Christians. We trust God with our eternal souls, but we can't trust God for the next 24 hours for the various tests and trials of life. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for you and for me to just say, Lord, you take over in my life. I'm frail, I'm weak, I stumble, sometimes fail. Lord, won't you, by the Spirit of God, take over and through our lives, as we yield our members unto him, bring forth fruit and glory to God. Is not this what Paul has in mind in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he said, For we are his craftsmanship, his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. But how can we produce good works? Well, we can't, but the Spirit of God who indwells us can. And I'm just pleading with those of us who are Christians today. This is one of the greatest, greatest needs of the hour for us as believers 
to so yield our members to God, our voices, our tongues, our whole being to God, our mind, all that we are. Now, I'm not talking about being passive. Don't misunderstand me. I've got a head to use, so do you. I've got emotions I can feel. I've got a will I can use. But he wants Christ Jesus to be the center of your affections, to sit upon the throne of your will, and to pour out his wisdom and his knowledge through your mind. We ought to be keen intellectually. We ought to be strong morally. How? By yielding ourselves unto him. What we can't do, he does. Remember that. So I just leave chapter 6 with you and say, why don't you be like the dear woman in Africa? This is your arm. This is your hand. And what this hand and this arm has done is yours. And this harvest of corn belongs to this arm, and this arm belongs to you. And so Mr. Clark, coming back to my story, Mr. Clark just bowed his head and thanked the dear woman and took the corn and thanked the Lord for his wonderful provision for them. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be in love with the Savior and to be used by God in some heart, some life, somewhere. If it's only a kind word, if it's only something that manifests love, even for the unsaved. Remember, God still loves the unsaved. As we had in chapter, in chapter 5, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us when we were living in active sin, and he manifested that love by dying for us. Now, can't we, his children, can't we, his children, love people even when they're in active sin? Can't we just love them and show them that God has made provision for them to be delivered from that? And that God is offering to sinners not only a divine pardon, not only forgiveness, not only eternal life, but to bring them into a relationship with himself as his children. Now we come to chapter 7. And again, we come to a tremendous chapter, a much misunderstood chapter, by the way. In chapter 5, we were delivered from Adam's race and from death. In chapter 6, uh, from sin as a master, we were its slaves. Now when we come to chapter 7, the death of Jesus Christ delivers us, breaks the relationship between the believer and the law. Now in chapter 5, we had two races, Adam and Christ. In chapter 6, we had two masters, the tyrant sin or Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, when we come to chapter 7, we have two things. We have two husbands, either the law or Christ. Now, in chapter 7, he is teaching that we need deliverance not only from sin as a master, but we must know something of deliverance from law. Remember that the law is the strength of sin, so we must have deliverance from it. Now, may I say very frankly, there is nothing wrong with the law. But there is something drastically wrong with us, with you and me. There's nothing wrong with the law. And I do not want you to get the opinion that I'm opposed to the law. Not a bit of it. On the other hand, 
Do not go to the extreme of saying that Jesus Christ kept the law for you. Jesus Christ did not keep the law for you. Jesus Christ met the demands of the law for you. Are two different things. We are not joined to Jesus Christ as he walked the earth when he came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. In fact, our Lord was the only one who ever really kept the whole law of God. Not only the written law, but the very spirit of the law. But his life on earth, my friend, doesn't help you. His life on earth was to prove to you and to me that he was a fit sacrifice. Just like you have in the Old Testament in Genesis, Exodus chapter 12, where they kept the Passover lamb from the 10th to the 14th day to prove it was a lamb without blemish and without spot. And our Lord lived three and a half years in his ministry without sin, proving he was a fit sacrifice for you and for me that he could satisfy the divine character, the divine holiness, the divine righteousness. So when you come to chapter 7, we're going to be dealing with a very, very important thing. So if in chapter 5 we were dead to Adam's race, in chapter 6 dead to sin, now when we come to chapter 7, dead to the law. And there are two sections in this chapter, two special sections, could be three. First of all, in the first six verses, uh, we're dealing with the principle of deliverance from the law. Or, in other words, we are delivered from the law through death in order to bring forth fruit unto God. Then the question is raised in the chapter, then why the law? Why did God give us the law? And we'll take that up. And then following that, you have Paul in his struggle to be good, and he found he couldn't be good. The more he struggled to keep the law, the more he broke the law. He could not compel the flesh to obey. Now, I'm not going to take this up in the sense whether Paul was a Christian when he wrote chapter 7 or his experience in chapter 7 was before he was a Christian or afterwards. I don't think that's the important thing. The important thing here is somebody who has a real heart to please God and tries to do it by keeping the law of Moses and finds he can't do it. The flesh will not behave itself. How can I be delivered from this which condemns? All the law of God can do is to condemn. And may I just say the law was never given to save anybody. The law was never given to make you holy. The law was given to show you how bad you were. You know, I've been a pastor here in Portland for a great many years. In fact, I've been 42 years in this city. And uh, I've dealt with a great many people. You could expect that. And how often I have met people, even older people, who say, well, Mr. Mitchell, you have your religion and I have my religion. But what is yours? Well, I try to keep the golden rule. Or I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, do you do it? No, but I do the best I can. Now, listen, friend. Well, in the seventh chapter, we're going to take up not only the principle of deliverance from the law, but also why God gave the law. Remember, the law was an added thing. It was imposed upon Israel 
until the Lord should come. It was imposed on them because of their attitude to God and because of the blindness of their own hearts to themselves. And I'm afraid, and I'm going to make it very blunt when I say, I'm afraid so many Christians today put themselves under the law of Moses as a rule of life. And the result is, if they're realistic about it, honest about it, gives them no joy. Do you know why? Because the more you try to keep it, the more you fail. Now, you find this in chapter 7, where Paul says, when I do good, I find evil present with me. When I want to go here, behold, I go someplace else. And I find a real struggle going on in my life. I want to do the right thing, but I don't do it. I don't want to lie, but I do. I don't want to steal, but I do. I don't want to deceive, but I do. What makes me do it? What makes me do it? And the more I try to keep the law, the more I fail. Now, chapter 7 is going to give to us the principle of deliverance from the law. Now, again, allow me to repeat. I'm going very slow on this. I'm dealing with a foundational truth from verses chapters 5, 12 through chapter 8. God's way of delivering his people from Adam's raising from death is through the death and resurrection of Christ. God's way of delivering his people and breaking the relationship with sin as a master is through the death, our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When we come to chapter 7, how can I get away from this ministration of death, the law? Nothing wrong with the law of God. But how can I live a holy life without it? You can. In fact, you cannot live a holy life by keeping the law. It was never given to make you holy. The law demanded holiness. Then how can I live unto God? And then I realized that Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, and my and your union with him, frees us from the law as a dominating factor in your life, so that in order that you might live unto God. God wants us to live unto him. And when you and I yield ourselves to him, that's exactly what we do. Now, I would like you to read, if I might be bold enough, I'd like you to read chapter 7 of Romans over and over again. And we take it up, God's way of delivering us from the law. And the Lord bless you today for his name's sake.
The Unchanging Word is an independent Bible study, and our conviction is that the Word of God has never changed and never will. We trust that your hearts have been blessed and encouraged through the study of God's Word. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Life